If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 13. I've been going through the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus are teaching that has, I don't want to say veiled references, but the idea is that Jesus is speaking in such figures or pictures or stories or symbols in such a way because he is actually pronouncing a judgment against the Jewish people who have rejected him. Now remember, a great principle all throughout Scripture, in fact, I found it the other day in, I think it was Ezekiel 37 I was reading through, found it the other day, leaders are designated to speak on behalf of their people. And so in doing so, you have to be careful about how you choose your leaders. In doing that, the leaders decided that they were going to reject who Jesus was as the promised Messiah. All the signs pointed that direction. All the scriptures were becoming fulfilled before their eyes. All the works that he was doing was from the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet they concluded that his power actually came from Satan. And they committed what is known as the unpardonable sin. In other words, they saw the righteous works of God being done through the promised Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they concluded that it was all the enemy's work. So they had a maximum amount of revelation, and they purposely hardened themselves towards what they were seeing and turned away from it. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because we see this on a minuscule level, not to this degree, but we see this on a minuscule level, probably with a lot of people that maybe you've talked with in the past, went to church with in the past, and you talk to them later and you think, where in the world did that person go? How in the world could they fall away from Christ like that? Well, I, I remember when, you know, such and such was sick in their family. We prayed, they were healed, that type of thing. We have all of these testimony stories about how God was active in their lives, and you next, next thing you know, they just decided to up and walk away. It just wasn't worth them for them. Or I heard one person explain it this way. He said, I just found that it was a lot easier to live my life without God in it. Now, here's the thing. That's probably a true statement. It's an honest statement. And why would it be easier? Because it's way easier to live for the world. It's way easier to live in the system that Satan has orchestrated. Why? Because it, it appeals to everything we want. Well, I want that, but I want that, but I want that. So all I got to do is exchange my Savior in order to get what I want. Dangerous place to be. So in looking at chapter 13, Jesus begins speaking to the Jewish crowds, and he tells them four parables. We've looked at two, and Jesus gives the interpretations to those two. We are going to look at the two where he does not give an interpretation at today, and if time allows, we are going to address the matter of what it is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, because that is very different than the kingdom of heaven, okay? And we're going to see why that's different. So, everybody ready? Mentally prepared? Yes? Right? Good attitudes on? Praise the Lord. Eye opener in? Okay, just making sure. So, chapter 13. Let's start in verse, uh, let's see here, 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like, pause. Okay? Stop for just one second. If you go back up and you look at verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Everybody see how there are some similarities. It's not exactly word for word, 
but there are similarities there. Everybody see this? Okay. Now, turn back to verse, uh, let's see, which one do we want to show here? Let's do 19. And this is his explanation of the parable of the sower. Notice what he says. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Everybody see that? Okay, so notice. The parable of the sower deals with the message or the word about the coming kingdom of Christ. And the result is people either understand it and bear fruit. They don't understand it because Satan has gotten in there and has removed things so that they can't comprehend it. Or they either became over, overcome with persecution and affliction or they decided to let the world choke out the truth. Does everybody see that? This is not about how to go to heaven when you die. This is so important to see. The word of the kingdom is not the gospel of God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They are not the same message, so that's important. So when we skip forward after the parable of the sower in Jesus' interpretation, and we saw here dealing with the wheat and the tares, remember something significant about the wheat and the tares. Number one, the device changes. And notice that he says in 24, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Now this is different than the word of the kingdom because this isn't about whether or not you understand it. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Now, only, only Maxine gets that. That's great. So it may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And if you remember, what happened was is that as they sowed, some of his workers fell asleep, an enemy came in and sowed tares, or what's known as darnel, in with them. But the problem is, is as they're growing up, you can't tell the difference between any of them. And you don't see the difference until they are getting towards maturity and they evidence themselves for what they really are. Well, when this happened, his servants freaked out and said, oh my gosh, somebody's come along and done this. Do we want to start separating all this stuff now? He says, no, if you do that, you might not just pull up the bad, but you'll pull up the good as well. So we want to wait. And if you remember, he doesn't have people do this work. He has angels step in and do this work. Those are the reapers. Everybody remember from your chart? Yes? Good? Okay. He has the angels step in and do it. And here's the significant point that lets us know when this happens. The harvest, the end of the age, when both are reaped, is at the same time. It cannot be speaking of the rapture of the church. Why is that? Because the church is raptured way before anything else happens. The church is raptured, and then there's seven years of God's wrath being poured out until Jesus returns, and then he sets up his kingdom for 1,000 years. He does away with all opposition at that time, and those who are Jews, and there are some Gentiles, who are still in their physical forms and they endure, they survive the seven years of persecution that happens at the hands of the man of lawlessness. They are ushered into the kingdom in a physical form. Satan is locked away for a thousand years, but they still have the flesh and the evilness of their hearts that is prompting them to sin. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Are we all caught up? Do we, do we have any questions about that before we continue forward? Because it's vital that we get that overall understanding before we move forward. Okay, great. So the crazy thing about the wheat and tares is, is that it's not just going to be a kingdom of 100% pure righteousness that's going on. Because there are people who have entered in, also known as a remnant of people. Because this remnant has entered into Jesus' millennial kingdom in their fleshly form, sin has a tendency 
to get the best of some people. And not just the best of some people, but to lead them in such a direction of complete rebellion against the sovereign king who rules on the throne of David. Scary place to be. These are the mysteries, the things that were formerly hidden in the Old Testament that he is now unveiling for them, okay? So with that in mind, let's look forward here. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Now stop. Who do you think the man is? Everybody notice the first three parables have a guy, a sower. Everybody see that? Who's the guy? Anybody got their chart? It's probably Christ, the son of man, right? He uses his messianic title to talk about that. Anybody know what the field is? The world, good. How many of you looked at your chart to find it? No. We had a big debate on whether or not the charts were helpful. You guys just hurt my case. Okay. <clears throat> so, the man is the, the man is the son of man, the sower, and the field is the world. But notice it's a mustard seed. Now, beforehand, the seed that was spread out in the parable of the sower, that was the word of the kingdom, right? And it all it was all contingent upon whether or not somebody understood it or not, and whether or not somebody was going to succumb to affliction and persecution and walk away, or whether somebody was going to be more concerned about riches and power and wealth, fame, all that stuff, and walk away as well. This is not the word of the kingdom here, though. If you notice in the second parable, the wheat and tares, it was about the sons of the kingdom, or the sons of God. Does everybody remember that? Everybody see that? Look up here. Uh, not, not at me. Don't look at me. Um, verse 38, I'm sorry. Uh, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. That's Jesus' interpretation of the wheat and tares. That seed was the sons of the kingdom. But however, this point right here is different for the simple fact that it's not just a scattering or a sowing of seed across ground. It's a particular seed. It's a mustard seed that is meant for the purpose of being planted. So notice it says here that there's a mustard seed which a man took and he sowed in his field. Verse 32, and this is smaller than all other seeds. Now, if you've done any research on this, you're going, no, it's not. There's smaller seeds than this, right? In Jesus's time in Palestine, there wasn't. The mustard seed was the smallest seed that they had available at their time that they actively used for crops when Jesus was alive. So if Jesus is using his current everyday examples in order to communicate this truth, there's no conflict in his comments. It makes perfect sense. And I've given you two or three paragraphs that prove this. But here's the interesting thing about this. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now stop. Anybody ever seen a mustard tree? No. In fact, that tree had gotten so big, it already better come in the bottles by the time it gets to that point, right? A mustard tree? No. Normally, they're shrubs, bushes. Maybe they'll get about four feet tall, but that's about it. But notice what is, what, is, what is being communicated here is the idea of it starts out tiny, but there is an abnormal growth that takes place here. In fact, some people have said, well, it's been recorded that some mustard bushes, shrubs, whatever you want to say that, can get all the way up to 10 feet. Well, some people have actually said, well, maybe 15, 20 feet. But here's the point that we see. It's not normal. Does everybody get that? It's abnormal. There's, and notice that the comparison is, 
It becomes greater than all the rest of what? The garden plants. Everything else that is planted around it, it becomes greater. And it is greater to the extent of it's abnormal. It's not like everything that we're used to seeing, okay? Now, with that in mind, notice the next part. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Anybody here like birds? You like birds? You realize they're from the devil? Anybody? All you raise your hand. What? What are you saying? Well, stop for a second. Go back. I'm just, I'm just trying to get your attention. It's an hour later. I should already have it, but I'm not taking anything for granted. Okay? And what we've seen so far, whenever Jesus brought birds into the picture, was it good or bad? It was bad. In fact, what were the birds representative of? Not just demons. The devil. He's very clear about that. Remember? A sower went out to sow, and he sowed on rocky soil next to the road. Or it wasn't rocky soil. It was soil next to the road. It's all beaten down. And the birds of the air swooped down and grabbed it. And when Jesus gives his explanation, he says, these are the ones who received the word of the kingdom, but the devil comes in and snatches it away from their understanding. Everybody see that? So all we can do, since we have no interpretation from the Lord about what this means, is take what he's previously said and the best possible that we can come to a conclusion. Now, if you work through this, you go home with it, you got your Strong's Concordance out, right? I couldn't bring it to hermeneutics, Pastor. I had it out at home because I was studying the parables, right? Who was it that came in with the, with the suitcase on the rollers to hermeneutics class with their books? Ruth, Yes. Man, she was ready to study. I loved it. It was great. A lot of books. But anyway, if you're there studying it, great. You get a pass. If you come to a different interpretation, great. Let me know. But let me tell you what I've come to. If you look here, the fact that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. There's a lot of people that wanted to connect this with some things going on in Daniel. You can see that in the notes. If you go and check those, you find that that tree is actually something completely different and has nothing to do with this whatsoever. This is trying to grab outside of Dan, or sorry Matthew's book in order to make sense of something. It's an educated guess. We're trying to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. I get it. You can't fault anybody. But you always have to look at the context. Does everybody notice that the birds can't nest in the tree until the tree gets fully grown? Everybody see that? Now, what does that sound like to you? The fact that something isn't evident until maturity takes place. Does this sound like the wheat and tares? Does it sound like that maybe it wasn't until you got to a point to where you had to mature or die? And in that situation, when it happened, that's when the presence of evil became known. Now, here's why this is important. Why does he liken it to a mustard seed? How does the kingdom of God start? How does it start? I mean, isn't there this great, magnificent battle going on in the Valley of Megiddo? Right? We call it Armageddon. Anybody familiar with the Valley of Megiddo? When Napoleon came upon this valley that is north of Jerusalem, in fact, I want to say it's like maybe 70 miles north of Jerusalem, when he came upon this valley one time when he was marching through, he looked out at this huge valley. I have pictures of it in my office. He looked at it and he said, this is the greatest natural battlefield ever seen 
on the face of the earth. I've never seen anything like it. You could fight the perfect war here. Guess what happens there? You do. You have all the armies of the world that have been deceived by the man of lawlessness and brought to a point where they are all coming against Israel at the same time. And it says that the battle is so bad that the blood is as deep as a horse's bridle. Anybody got horses? Okay, you know what I'm talking about then. Good gravy. That's a lot of blood. And not only that, it goes for a few miles. Does that sound like a good time? No. But what's amazing is, is the Valley of Megiddo has been exactly crafted for that type of moment. There's going to be a great battle. And all of a sudden, when it seems like that there is no hope for Israel whatsoever, Jesus Christ doesn't rip through the clouds. He rips through the sky. Now, this is important. I've said it before, but I really want you to think and meditate on this. If he rips through the sky, if the sky rolls up like a scroll and he returns like that, this tells you that heaven is another dimension. It's not just you getting a rocket ship and keep going straight up until you hopefully run into him somewhere. That's not it. It means that the very sky that we walk outside and we look at one day will roll up like blinds. Everybody seen those old ones? Like that, right? I love those things. Why is that? Because it reminds me of this moment. And when they roll up like that, and Jesus returns back, and we're all back there cheering for him, right? We got our pennants, foam fingers, cheese heads. We're going for it. Okay? This is a good time. We're excited. Why? Because everything that was evil, sinful, full of opposition, that hated righteousness is all made right at that moment. Well, I don't know about you. That's the day I'm looking for. I'm looking for no more, oh. I'm looking for no more six cups of coffee because of Mondays. That's not true. I'm looking way forward to six cups of coffee. <sighs> Moving on. But at this moment here, what you find out is the kingdom starts small. Jesus comes back. He destroys all opposition. And then he sets up his kingdom, not in New York, not in Washington, D.C. He doesn't take over the Pentagon. He's not trying to overcome Brazil at that moment. He's not trying to overthrow Rome at that moment. He sets up in Jerusalem, and he sets down on a throne that rightfully belongs to his ancestor, David, just as we're told in 2 Samuel 7. It will happen in the same way. Now, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't come back as like an inflatable, jolly green giant guy. We are made in his image and likeness, yes? So he comes back in a form like us, right? Glorified, beautiful, probably scaring us to death. I plan on losing both eyebrows when he appears. I mean, I think it's just going to happen because it's going to be so awesome, I'm not going to know what to do with it. It is the greatest expectation I will ever have in my life, and it will be met way beyond I could have ever thought it could have been met. It's going to be incredible. But he's going to start there. And then he's going to start setting up his kingdom. And why does he start setting up his kingdom? Because, and we're going to talk about this later in a month or so, those who live their lives now in light of the kingdom to come that sacrificed all the pleasures of this world and didn't want anything to do with it, got rid of all the worldliness that tries to tie people down, stopped gossiping and playing around, 
Stop thinking that their entire identity was wrapped up in what people think about their status statement on Facebook. And instead, they lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. They took up their cross daily, and they followed him. They willingly suffered. They gave up their life now so that they would have an abundant life in the future. In fact, by doing that, that's how you get an abundant life now. For those that did that, he is going to start subscribing to them, commissioning them, appointing them to be rulers over certain parts. And his kingdom will start in Jerusalem, and it will encompass the entire globe. It starts small, but it goes to an abnormal point. In fact, let me show you something real quick before we hit the next one. Everybody take your Bibles, put your notes here, something like that. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2. And Daniel is of no shortage of material. But let me just give you a brief synopsis because of what time's looking like. I don't know how far we're going to get, but wherever we don't get, we'll pick up with that next week, okay? Because this is all really important stuff. We need to take our time and understand it. In Daniel, what happens is there's a king. This king is King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king of Babylon. He's the most powerful king in the world at that moment. He has come over in a few different excursions, and he has destroyed Jerusalem, and he has started taking captives back, of which Daniel is one of them in his teenage years. And Daniel is wholly sold out, devoted to the Lord, doesn't care what anybody thinks about it. He is all about Yahweh, okay? The king has a disturbing dream about a statue. And this statue has got different elements that make it up from feet to head, head to feet. And at the end, a big, huge, massive rock comes and destroys this statue before his eyes. And he's so troubled by it that he's seeking out somebody to give an interpretation. So Daniel prays unto the Lord. The Lord gives him the interpretation. Daniel goes and tells him. And I want to give you the end of this interpretation of the dream because what you find out is it's actually a prophetic vision about how world superpowers are going to take place. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the beginning of that along with the Persians that come in, along with Greece, Alexander the Great's time that comes in after that, then after that, the crushing power of Rome that takes place is what we see going on in Jesus' time and then eventually dis- dissipates. Forgive me, I have trouble using big words. Uh, verse 44, chapter 244. I just want you to see this one verse. In the days of those kings, now those kings are the kings that make up the Roman Empire in the end. Rome dissipates and comes back together as a force But it's not as strong as it was in Jesus' time. But in the time of those kings, when that happens, the God of heaven will set up a what? There it is, guys. A kingdom which will never be destroyed. Notice the force of this. It will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. Notice that. Why does it say that? Because anytime you come in and conquer a kingdom, you just take its people and just morph it into what you're doing and now you continue on with your kingdom. Notice, it's not like that here. This kingdom will never end. It won't be destroyed. It will not be left for another. There's no one to rule afterwards, in other words, is the idea. And it will crush and put to an end, notice this, all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure how long? Forever. Jesus Christ will rule everything everything this is the great hope guys i don't know what you're hoping in this morning but this is the hope this is the culmination of our salvation that gives greater 
I don't have a shun word, but greater revelation to God's glorification. And I didn't come up with that, but that's true. When our salvation comes to an end, and it's the idea of we have been glorified with him. Well, guess what? He comes back and he receives even more glory because he's triumphing over all evil and he sets up his ruling power. So this idea of the kingdom of Christ having traces of evil that pop up at the end show us that there is a problem that even in the perfect rule of Christ on earth, he is having to deal with sin decisively at that moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that my, my sins are paid for, taken care of. And here's the crazy thing. All these people who rebel in the kingdom, their sins are paid for too. But they haven't received forgiveness of sins because they have not believed in Jesus Christ. Now stop for a second. Do we have Jesus ruling from Jerusalem right now? No, and don't say he's on the throne of your heart. No, he's not. Okay? But think about that. These people at this time will actually have Jesus, physically, glorified, ruling perfectly, and setting up a perfect kingdom with standards of righteousness like we've never seen in our lives. And there will be maximum worship and nothing but glory pouring out from him all the time. And there will be people on earth who will say, he's not my king. Doesn't that seem crazy to you? I mean, it almost seems unfathomable. But you know what it reveals? It reveals exactly how wicked my heart can become. My heart can be so wicked I can deny my king who sits in my presence ruling perfectly. That's just how evil we are, guys. I hope you see that. Let's never think that somehow we've mastered it. So I want you to see this idea, the kingdom coming in, dominating everything. Go back to Matthew 13. We're not going to get her done today, but that's okay. You guys knew we wouldn't. So now verse 33. The birds nesting in the branches are the presence of evil, something that Satan had sown previously that was manifesting itself now that the tree, the bush, had matured into a tree, and now the birds are becoming evident. They have a place of existence there in this kingdom. Look at verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like, stop, same formula? Exact same formula. But here's the crazy thing. This is only one verse long. It's only one verse long. So we can't afford to mess it up. Notice what it says. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now stop for just a second. What do you know about leaven from Scripture? What's that? It represents sin. In fact, overwhelmingly it represents sin. In fact, there are only three instances that I could find in the Old Testament whenever they would talk about celebrating feast and preparing bread and things for sacrifices unto the Lord and those types of things. I only found three where leaven was included at all. And it didn't seem to have any kind of significance as to what it represented. It wasn't like, we're going to be okay with sin here. 
Is God ever okay with sin? No, so we know that can't be the case. So we look here at leaven, and we see that it represents sin. What does Matthew have to say about leaven? That would be my greatest concern. Is there any place else in Matthew that deals with the idea of leaven? There is. Let's go to Matthew 16. Turn over just three chapters. He teaches on this later, of course. Matthew 16. And we will start in verse 6. And we'll go to verse 12. We'll just read through this real quick here. Come on, man. No yawning today. You have an extra hour. Good gravy. Chapter 16, verse 6. And Jesus said to them, Watch out. Now Jesus is talking to his disciples. Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, or yeast, you can say it that way, yeast that would make its way into bread. Now notice, are they opening a bakery? Is that what's going on here? No, no, this is not Nito's and Baraboo, come on. So notice this, they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because he did not bring any bread. Jesus must be saying, watch out for their bread, because Jesus forgot to bring bread, and so therefore we got to look for bread, but we can't buy our bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Do you ever look at these guys sometimes in scriptures and be like, come on, man, what? Hindsight is always 2020, right? It is. And let's be honest, if you were there, that would be you. That would be me. I would be Peter. You guys know it. You guys know it. He's chopping ears and he never shuts up. That's Peter, right? Hold on, let me speak for everybody. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Far be it from you, Lord, you'd be crucified. What in the world are you talking about? And then Jesus having taken me to the woodshed. I mean, it it fits perfectly. So you guys laugh because you know it's true. It's like, yep, yep, you look like an ear cutter to me. All right, verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, now watch this, you men of little faith. Now this is an interesting response. Are the disciples thinking about worldly situations? Or spiritual situations? Worldly. It's kind of like Nicodemus, right? How could a guy go back in his mother's womb and be born again? You know, Jesus was like, help me, Father. <laughs> Probably. But notice this, you men of little faith. Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Is that really the issue here? Who's bringing the bread? Are you guys just... So theologically inept that your stomachs are leading the way? Now that probably touched a nerve here, but anyway. Verse 9. Do you not yet understand? And notice, it's a point of understanding. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? Do you remember that? Did you remember that from Sunday school? You got to go over it every semester, right? It's mandatory. Jesus fed them. Jesus didn't have a lot, and he fed a whole bunch of people. And when he said, hey, count up what we got left over. They said, man, we can't believe how much. We got more left over than what we started with, Lord. Exactly, because he's Jesus. And that's what he does. So if you're worried about whether or not you're going to eat, that's not the point here. Don't you guys remember? I've already shown you I can take care of your bellies. That's not the problem. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? And how many baskets full you picked up? Because he completely provides for all their needs. That doesn't need to be a concern. We don't need to worry about that. In fact, doesn't he tell us that? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Is your life not worth more than food and clothing? Stop being concerned about that stuff. 
there are greater things to put our minds and hearts on than to be worried about whether or not we're going to have something to eat. Verse 10, or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up. Two times he fed a multitude of people. Verse 11, how is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then Matthew turns on the light bulb for us. Then they understood. Since Jesus did away with the physical providing for your needs argument, then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the what is it? Uh-oh. The teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you realize what just happened? Matthew just interpreted this for you. When Jesus says, watch out for leaven, he is speaking of somebody's teaching. That's how the Gospel of Matthew uses the imagery of leaven. Now let me ask you a question. Go back to 13, and let's read this again, and let me ask you if the wheels start clicking into place for you. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. You tell me the interpretation. What is leaven? Teaching. Is it good teaching or bad teaching? It's bad teaching. And there are three measures of it. It's amazing. I can't seem to find anybody that knows what three pecks means. Somebody gave me the, one commentary said, well, it's between 44 and 99 pounds. I thought, good grief, that's like four toddlers. What in the world? That's how I measure a thing in toddlers right now. So what's that? It says 60 pounds. I had somebody else tell me it's only three gallons. Who knows? Here's what we know. Leaven is bad. That's what we know. That's the great theological Revelation today, it's bad. Now think about what he's saying here. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, false teaching, which a woman took and hid in the three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. What do you think the flour is? Anybody know? Well, the world, our hearts, the remnant, could it be the kingdom? Let me ask you this. In the wheat and tares, isn't the whole idea that good is growing up and all of a sudden bad is growing up and it's not until it's matured that you see the problem, yes? And then you dealt with the whole idea with the mustard seed. Mustard seed is growing up to an abnormal point and when it gets to the point to where it matures out and is beginning to dominate in that situation of everything, then you find that the birds have taken root in this place. Anybody know how Nazi propaganda got started in Germany? Leaflets, pamphlets. If we can just simply get people to read, we'll control how they think. And all of a sudden, we will lead them into an incredible direction. And here's the thing sometimes we forget. We see all the guys dressed up in the uniforms with the swastikas on their arms and the whole Heil Hitler and all that stuff. you got to remember, the people of Germany were on board with this. They looked at the whole thing as, whoa, we're successful. We're dominating the world. This is a good thing. Was it a good thing? No, but you couldn't tell them any different, could you, at that time? Didn't matter that they were killing people. It matter they were gassing people. It matter they were starving people. You see what I'm saying? 
to them, they were convinced it was a good thing. How did that start? Here, you care to read this leaflet? I mean, isn't that the same way we try to witness to people with tracks? Why do we do that? Because we know that the track can talk to the person well after we're gone. And if we can't be there to give them the answer of the gospel of Jesus Christ so they know how their sins can be forgiven and they can have eternal life full and free, it does the work for us because we can't always be there. I make no apologies for trying to indoctrinate people with tracks. Why? It's the truth. But when you're dealing something like the ideas, the seedbed of Nazism, that's dangerous. You better have the right tract. You better be on the right track. Okay, it's time to wrap that up. The jokes are going bad. So notice this. 11, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. Who came in and sowed the darnel in the night while everybody was asleep? The devil, the enemy. Now, I don't know how else you can result this. Megan, won't you tell us the interpretation? Who is the woman? The woman is the devil. I, oh my gosh, I just got a whole lot of bad looks. I didn't say this. I didn't write this, okay? And I don't think Jesus is saying anything about women. Jesus had an extremely high view of women, okay? That's not the idea. He is painting a picture. And why is that? Who did the baking in that day? Okay, so let's not all freak out. We're going to the polls on Tuesday, Pastor. You better come down. What's that? What's that? (laughs) Say it again, what? The men couldn't find the flower. And to that I say yes and amen. We could not. But chances are if the leaven is false doctrine, false teaching, and the woman brought it along to unadulterated flour, which is probably the goodness of the kingdom that is starting to rise up, yes? And she started putting it in there so that what does leaven do? It spreads throughout everything, and it begins to affect everything around it. Then when it comes time for it to bake, to mature, to grow up, what do you find? Look what it says there at the end. Until it was all leavened. The presence of evil in the kingdom of Christ will be to ridiculous proportions. So now let's read these last two verses. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus' unfolding truths about his kingdom. They never thought that there would be a presence of evil that would exist during the time of the kingdom of the Messiah. And yet he is showing them there is going to come a point where evil is going to rise up and it's going to have to be dealt with because it is going to have cataclysmic effects on everything that Jesus is doing, even reigning in a righteous position. Now, since we don't have time to get into the rest of this, and we will pick up with it later, I really need you guys to read your notes. I really need you guys to keep your minds about this. If for some reason you feel like you've missed something, please listen to the sermon online because we are going to be dealing with 
What does it mean to be in the kingdom of the Father? Why does the rapture of the church matter in this type of situation? What is it going to look like at the very end when those who don't know Christ are judged? And what is this great uprising of evil in the kingdom going to look like? We're going to deal with all of that end time stuff over the next two weeks. So here's the thing I want to conclude with. We've got to have a point to wrap up with. Don't underestimate your heart, please. Don't sit here and think, man, I'm good. I got it all figured out. I don't need to read my Bible today. I can just sit here and recite verses in my head. Me and Jesus are good. No, no, no. Never presume upon your own righteousness. We have no righteousness apart from Jesus. And if it can rise up when he is perfectly ruling, physically there, glorified, everything he is dispensing out is perfect. He has got his metacoy, his partners, established at different vicinities, ruling over underneath his headship. And there is complete and perfect righteousness and justice on the earth. And now he has to pull out, as Psalm 2 says, the rod of iron and deal with sin in the midst of his kingdom. Understand this, guys. Just because that is a time and place that we're talking about doesn't mean that he doesn't still deal with willful sin in our hearts today. He does. And that's why we have to be humble before him and confessing our sin before him. Everybody good? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us a way to come to God the Father through the perfect death of Jesus Christ the Son. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to confess these sins. Father, our hearts are more wicked than what we understand. And if we think this is not us, we are lying to ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves. I pray, Father, you please give us an adoration, an affection for you, to glorify you, to reverence you at every moment of our lives, realizing that apart from you, we can do nothing. So, Father, if we think ill about this, if we think wrong about this, if somehow we, we, we don't find ourselves harmoniously uh, agreeing with what your word says about these matters. Help change our hearts, please. We pray it uh, by the Spirit, that the Spirit would do the work with the word to change us and to conform our images, our minds, more to the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.